What's up, everybody? Jeremy here. This is a new thing that uh, we're giving a try here at Ballin' Out Super. I thought it would be nice in our third year as a podcast to start start trying to, to cover more serious topics a, as it relates to anime. And um, basically, the idea is uh, I, I wanted to... We, we've had this title of Leftist Anime Podcast for a while now, and I thought it, it, it would be nice to try to live up to that a little bit bit more basically by covering some more serious topics uh as uh, around anime as a culture and as an industry and uh basically try to uh just put some more information into this podcast and to try to to occasionally um do uh something a little more sincere and i know this is not usually what our show is like but you know it's always nice to try new things and uh in this episode i sit down with evan minto to discuss anime as an industry and how it functions how it's funded how it's created and uh what the labor issues are uh, centered around it. So this is the first in what will maybe become a series, uh, unless everybody hates it, Uh, in which case we'll never do this again, and this is the only one you'll hear. But uh, for now, uh, this is a conversation with Evan Minto, uh, the first episode of Ballin' Out College Hours. (laughs) That's not the name. Evan, thank you for sitting down with me. Uh, very excited to uh, finally add some uh, actual leftist credentials to my leftist anime podcast. Oh boy, I feel like I'm being slightly oversold over here. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on you, uh, <laughs> uh, anime labor expert Evan Minto. Oh, that's a scary thing when you put expert after anybody's name. <laughs> okay, so let's start out with kind of how this came to be is... Uh, there was a discussion that had taken place on my podcast a little while back about the voice actor, I believe, of Spike Spiegel and also uh, like the Wolverine, maybe Steve Bloom. I think so. Yeah, there was a conversation between him and the guy from the Animaniacs, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is an insane right. sentence. But uh, there was a conversation yeah, it's a cool crossover. Yeah, they Pretty were into that crossover. I think the Animaniacs guy uh, has a podcast about voice acting where Ooh. he and Spike discussed uh, the the wages of anime voice actors versus Western animation voice actors. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. Spike said that for the entirety of Cowboy Bebop, he made less money than he made for like one episode of the X-Men or something like that. And somebody had brought this up to me, and it kind of led me down this whole rabbit hole. It's something that I guess I'd never really considered before of, you know, what is, like, what are the wages involved in uh, creating this thing that I talk about twice a week, every week? So I I put something out on Twitter, and somebody had pointed me to you and said said that you uh, were were an expert, a leading expert on the topic of... (laughs) anime wages no but like you um they said that you you do this um this talk at conventions uh about kind of like the the intersection of leftist politics and anime and i guess uh to start out with i i was wondering like kind of how you started doing that so i do a fair number of panels at anime conventions about kind of like a lot of them tend to focus on anime history or production 
mm-hmm. which I've done once about like character design or background art and like, you know, talking about the, the staff who make those and also talking about like, like I do one recently um, that's about like anime before Astro Boy. So talking about like all, you know, before the sort of dawn of TV anime. So mm-hmm. also I am, uh, you know, I'm a member of DSA. I do a little bit of uh, organizing in real life. Right. related to anime. Yeah. And uh, I guess I was specifically, it was a combination of seeing a bunch of stories of left-wing creators, especially in the early history of anime, and also seeing a bunch of anime Nazi shitheads online that people <laughs> associated with anime. So they're right. like, yeah. anime fans are all Nazis, right? And I was like, wait a sec, I'm like doing all this research about cool left-wing activism as it relates to anime, and there's this stereotype, right, that anime is this one kind of politics. And it's not like, you know, anime isn't all one thing or another. The actual medium itself, like most mediums, is like really diverse. So there's right. fascist anime, there's leftist anime. But I kind of just wanted to tell the leftist side of that story because that's the uh, the good guys. You know? Yeah. So wh- what has the reception of it been at cons? Uh, so far, I think I've only given it at one convention, but I'm going to be giving it again coming up soon. I gave it mm-hmm. at, at Fanime. And then also, I gave a 10-minute version of it as what we call a red talk at DSA San Francisco, which mm. threw some of the, the DSA folks for a loop. They're like, wait a sec, <laughs> who's this anime nerd showing up here telling us about anime actually being socialist? So that is, uh, that. let's talk about that for the next half hour. What was that like? <laughs> So the, the here's the thing. I I'm my DSA chapter has three Evans. Mm. I'm one of the three. I would say I, I am the least active of the three Evans, right? The others are like chairs of committees and stuff and they're right, organizing right, a lot right, more right. things. Uh so you know, there's like homelessness Evan and there's like labor Evan and then I get to be anime Evan cuz I'm that Evan who won't stop talking about anime. <laughs> In fairness, that's a great Evan to be. You gotta have, yeah, you gotta have one anime fan, and let's be real, as much as, like, DSA members are gonna be like, actually, we're all focused on much more important things than that, they've got a lot of anime Evans, you know, (laughs) spread around the country. Every chapter's got quite a few anime Evans. Well, there is a, there's a Twitter account, uh, DSA Anime Defense, um, is I that don't... the same one? There's DSA Anime. Yeah, is yeah, DSA it's Anime a, Defense a his, different one? No, no, no. The, that person's name on Twitter was like DSA Anime Defense or something like that. Oh, okay. And yeah, for a yeah. little while they were acting as a novelty account, and it doesn't seem like they're really doing much anymore. I see them post sometimes, but it seems like they're just somebody's account now. Yeah. Like they're not really <laughs> posting about anime as it relates to DSA at all. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Okay, so but, let's kind of get into the meat of what we were, uh, what we're trying to say down to talk about which is labor in the production of anime and i know we both of us have done a little bit of research for this coming into it and uh neither of us it seems focused particularly on um uh the the dubbing side of it the the english language side of it which is perhaps something for a part two yeah and also i mean that is not the area i tend to focus on so a lot of the research that i do is mostly focused around the japanese production like a true anime evan right look (laughs) Everything from the U.S. is bad. The only good things come out of Japan. That's how it works. I'm sorry. 
I don't make the rules. So I guess like maybe let's start out with sort of like a background of the labor movement in Japan overall. Like in your finding, like do you think do you feel like it's a like a strong uh, labor environment? Do you think that that um, it's stronger or weaker than than what we know here in the United States? I think it it is it's uh, it's hard to say compared to the United States, but I think that. Like, especially early on, Japan was dealing with a lot of really, really bad, like, crackdowns on left-wing organizing in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they had, in sort of, like, the early 20th century, they had this rise of a right-wing militaristic government, right? Mm -hmm. And there were some, like, very, very bad crackdowns on leftists in the early history that I've I've done... uh, fair bit of research on um like yeah so i mean specifically there were two really notable um sort of incidents as they're called uh where the government cracked down super super hard on on like socialists and communists um the high treason incident and the march 15th incident Mm -hmm. uh so the uh these were kind of in the early 20th century uh, the high treason incident was it a, a plot to assassinate the emperor uh, by a group of socialists and anarchists. I know, yeah, the, there were, that was a big issue at the time, was anarchists in particular were like, hey, the emperor is a very bad idea. Well, and that's a that was a global uh, that was a global phenomenon around that time period, right? Because we're talking about the same time, roughly as propaganda by the deed is kind of like the the big, uh, I guess, shall we say, trend in the anarchist world, right? This is around the same time as Berkman tries to kill Frick. Uh, this is the mm. same time as, uh, uh, the name is escaping me, but, uh, it was an assassin in Europe who, who said some epic thing before they killed him. <laughs> you all know what that- I'm talking about out there. <laughs> There's some, some very epic, uh, anarchist stories in Japan too. Yeah. Uh, but, but this one does not end very well for the anarchists, uh, because it resulted in like mass arrests. Cause right. they, you know, the, the government was just like waiting for an excuse and they're like, Oh, this is perfect. Right. Like mm-hmm. everybody who has any issue with the emperor is now a suspect in this case. Right. And, uh, executed 12 of the alleged conspirators. Uh, and then in the, in the March 15th incident, it was, uh, this one is like kind of similar, I guess, to, to some of the stuff we had in the U.S., but seems even, even more comically anti-communist, mm-hmm. where the Communist Party had been made illegal because opposing private property was illegal in right. Japan. It was, like, literally on the books. Yeah, so I saw uh, a bit about that, that it was sort of, like, the Communist Party, which now is, like, not a particularly uh, uh, strange thing to be affiliated with. In Japan, the, in Japan, the modern yeah. Communist Party is... I think kind of boring from everything that I've heard. Like, they, yeah. you know, they, they have some pretty solid positions on things, but they kind of just like, they're just in the legislature and stuff. They yeah. have a couple seats. They're, you know, they're not it's like, like a big than controversial 20, thing. Uh, less than 20 people, but like uh, still 20 people would be, I mean, shit, if we had 20 DSA people. I know, people. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as I understand it, like it was largely an underground movement kind of until uh, after the war. Yeah. I was just going to say the March 15th incident was basically the Communist Party won some elections and then the prime minister was like, oh, <laughs> hey, isn't there a law that says they're not allowed to do that? And yeah. then like went around and arrested <laughs> thousands of people. Yeah, just actually, here's the thing. You didn't. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was like it was it was a very bad situation. I read a little bit of you know writings of people from the time, kind of uh, they they were not having a very good time trying to organize right. in Japan, right? Because they were just getting cracked down on constantly. And they also including some animators. There's there's like some kind of connections there where there are some people in the early animation industry who Ooh. were involved in that. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it too, it's like they're kind of late coming to the labor movement as a whole, right? Because unions only really start popping up there in like the 1890s, whereas like in the rest of the world, it's kind of like the the 18 like 40s, 50s, 60s. So it's like not like terribly late, but I mean, it, it's they're they're a little bit behind kind of the rest of the labor movement overall, which I imagine is largely uh, due to the fact that they were a fully isolationist uh, state until the 1850s. Yeah, I think that probably has a lot to do with it and that their like industrialization was sort of this like catch up thing where they were right. like, oh, look at this. Like, this is what the rest of the world has. And then they kind of, you know. Yeah, we and can do it way think, worse to exactly. you. <laughs> right. But but it's sort of like, yeah, it's the 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 dark underbelly of that that thing that people often I think somewhat correctly associate with Japan, which is like taking what the rest of the world did and then being like, Oh, we can do it better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah it's yeah, like, yeah. well, we can do industrialization better and we can do exploitation better. Yeah. <laughs> and I you know, later on, we can do imperialism better. <laughs> Which Fuck. is like not. I mean, I'm not even like joking there. That that was part of the rationalization for like Japanese Empire was right. like this is this is what the Western empires are doing. We can't let them do it to us. We have to do it to them and yes, to everybody else. Definitely yeah. a major major influence in that. So the big thing that I saw a lot uh, in my reading about this was that it sort of starts to become more a part of their culture uh, after the war, and in a very strange twist of fate. Uh, it is kind of the United States involvement as an occupying force that kind of makes this a more prevalent part of their culture. Sort of, but also a lot of the stuff that, that I've kind of, you know, unearthed when researching this is that for a lot of more left-wing people in general, but also specifically in like the animation industry and the film industry in Japan, the post-war period, it was sort of this like com comically bad thing where they had a right-wing militaristic government that was cracking down on left-wing mm -hmm. expression of any kind, right? Like they were, they were censoring things in like the pre-production phase of making animation and film. And they're like, okay, those guys are gone. We got some new bosses and the Americans came in and, and while there was some some reforms there, they also just were like, hey, but you know what we don't want is any communism. Yes. But right? so they like cracked down on a lot of the same people, <laughs> including union organizers. Like strangely enough, in their constitutional committee is uh, this guy. Right. Uh, is a Kyuichi Tokuda, who is like the chairman of the Japanese Communist Party for like a very long time. So, like, even if they are trying to impose this sort of anti-communist, uh, you know, American idea on them, they're doing a very bad job of it. Actually, so, yeah, I, I haven't, I'm not super familiar with that part of the story there, but I mm. can imagine from what I am familiar with that it might have something to do with the fact that whether or not you were aligned with the militaristic government uh, during the war was, like, a big factor in your sort of mm. status with the American authorities afterwards. So people would kind of get blacklisted and stuff. So that makes sense. 
Yeah, it, it's possible that they kind of wanted some of those left-wing people involved because they didn't have ties to the previous government. Right, that makes sense. And they were, in fact, the enemies of the previous government. But so the important thing coming out of this Constitution is that the, the Constitution itself guarantees workers the right to participate in a union, which... yes. You know, so, it seems so definitely to a be, lot of unions kind of cropped up in that post-war period, right? And um, the other big thing from this that I saw was in the late '80s, they kind of dissolved, I guess, uh, a lot of the unions or or reorganized them into these three major federations, w- which are uh, it's Rango, uh, Zenroran, and Zenrokyo, mm-hmm. and uh, they all seem to have their own flavor. Politically, but the big one is affiliated with the Liberal Democratic Party. Uh, yeah, which <laughs> which I wrote down in my notes is confusingly a conservative party. <laughs> they love to do that. They're big fans, the conservatives, <laughs> of doing that all over the place. So now that kind of brings us, I guess, to uh, more modern affairs. And I guess I'd like to focus a little bit on just based on the fact that we're a Dragon Ball podcast. Yeah, this makes uh, a lot of sense. <laughs> uh, Toei specifically, right? Um, well, to- I mean, the thing is, focusing on Toei is also like what you do when you talk about this in general, because right. they are They're like the biggest- one of the few places worth worth talking about, like unionization in right. anime, um, because they put out. I don't know, a million things a year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also, they have a union, which is very rare. Yes, they do have a union, but it's shockingly hard to find information on them. Mm-hmm. It's really, they have, really they have hard. A website. They have a they website do. in Japanese that I was able to, to dig up. Uh, but I mean, I kind of, I don't know if maybe we should get into this right now. As I understand it, part of the issue is that Toei's union is a, this is like the the benefit and the you know, whatever, the blessing and the curse. It's like a union of all of Toei, which is not only an animation company, it's also right. a film company. Uh-huh. And so I think that they're, my understanding is, is they maybe have a little bit less kind of influence over the animation portion of it. But I, I think, you know, any animators who are, uh, who are employees of Toei are part of that union. Right. But as we'll get to, most animators in the anime industry are not actually employees of companies a lot of them work as freelancers this is the big thing that i i came across that i was kind of shocked by is that nobody works full-time like there's no Mm full-time anime staff we just uh we we were just speaking to uh this guy chad vigorous um, and he was telling us about going to Japan and seeing sort of an anime trade school in some ways. Mm. Like he he went to a school where where kids are learning how to be voice actors and kids are learning how to animate and kids are learning all the different jobs that go into becoming an anime worker. And so to me, that indicated that that there was some sort of a pipeline from education to, you know, a career. But I suppose my experience with the uh, job market here in the United States should have uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) perhaps taught me better that, uh, no, in fact, that's not at all how it works. Um, I mean, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that, because it's not like there's no full-time jobs at these studios like some studios hire mostly full-time you know in-house workers some hire like a mix of them Uh, and also there actually are training programs that a fair number of studios run where they will hire young animators who don't have enough experience yet and they'll 
you know, pay them to work on shows, but it'll be a sort of training period. Right. Uh, they don't pay them a lot, as we'll get to, but, like, there are, there are some cases where people can actually, like, work their way up. But uh, typically, the people who actually are, like, the most successful as animators are freelancers, as, as I understand it. Yes. And they're, like, like the, it's the, the sort of star animators who work as freelancers who take work from any studio that wants to pay them, like, a, you know, a good rate for their work. So, like, that's, like, that's the career path. The career path doesn't involve, like, stable employment with this one studio or something. It involves becoming, like, a, you know, a well-known enough animator that you can just sort of take bids from anywhere. Right. But then it kind of comes with this double-edged sword where, yes, you are, um, you're the, you're better paid, you have more freedom to move about, but then it, it also doesn't protect you uh, Correct. In, yeah. in, in, in the Toei Union. And... It kind of it seems like it's a mixed bag as to whether or not this is benefiting the workers or this is benefiting the employer, because it seems like to me from from this that uh, a lot of this is is Toei trying to skirt past the protections put in place by their own union. I don't know how much of it is Toei specifically doing that as much as it's like, that's just the way the industry works. Yeah, the industry like, at large, I The industry say. as a whole is trying, is definitely trying to do that, yes. I'd say. Or at least is just, at this point, is maybe just doing it because that's how it has worked forever. You know what I right. mean? Right. Well, and that's kind of, I mean, fuck. This just reminds me so much of, like, comedy, you know, and, and showbiz mm. here and the way that things work here where you're expected to toil away for a really long period yeah. of time uh just grinding and and working for free and just taking any gig that will will even like give you any time at all because like that's what everybody else did and that's the way that the industry is supposed to work you know and i i think the analogy is not a bad one either because you know you were saying you're not sure if it's good for the workers or good for the companies i think it is obviously for some workers it works out very well like yeah. they can do like those those star animators i think do very well right like i think they are I don't know actual numbers, right? But from everybody I've talked to, you know, nobody's told me a number, but they kind of give me the sense that these are like, these people are like living comfortably. Yes. Right. But like with any kind of like entertainment medium, there's only so much room for star animators, right? Like everyone can't be a star animator. Exactly. And the bitter, the bitter truth of it is that those star animators are only able to be the star animators because of the fact that there are not star animators, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. This industry <laughs> is built on a hundred, you know, kids who will never be star animators, hoping that someday they will be a star animator, you know? No, and, not just and, in the sense of, like, that it, it you know, justifies the the inequality or whatever, but also literally in the sense that those those star animators, they're, they're key animators, so they're doing keyframes. Right. And then it's those underpaid young animators who are doing the in-betweens to make their work show up on screen. Right. And so this brings us to a, from the, what is it, the Japanese Animation Creators Association. Janica. Janica. Yeah. Uh, I found this graph of average yearly income and average age of various um, uh, workers in the anime industry and uh, the in-betweeners, which I don't know, what is an in-betweener? Oh, yeah, so I, I sometimes forget to establish this stuff. So the the way that animation works in general, but also specifically in the, the Japanese animation case, mm-hmm. is that someone 
draws the keyframes, which is the key poses of emotion. Right. And usually, like, most of the kind of creative work is done there in terms of, like, defining kind of the personality of the motion and things like that. And then the in-betweener, it, like, the, those frames are not the full, not 24 frames, but the full, like, whatever the frame rate is, right? Mm-hmm. It could be 24 frames a second or 12 frames a second right. or, or, like, 8 or whatever. Like, the keyframes aren't aren't at that rate. They're slower, right? Mm-hmm. And then the in-betweener is filling in the gaps to smooth out the motion. Yes. So, like, they have to be able to technically draw well, but they're not necessarily, like, coming up with the personality of the motion. They're just, like, filling in the gaps. Right. And, so. and for those at home, uh, for an even more uh, uh, layman example of the in-between shots, it's whenever you see, like... When you when you freeze frame on an anime and the picture looks super fucked up, like that's kind you might of might be a bad in betweener, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what you're seeing is like these in between shots that like may look a little weird, but it's only because that's how you make the motion end up looking fluid. Yeah, actually, yeah, it depends. Sometimes sometimes you do get bad in betweeners who just don't do a very good job with those shots, and right. sometimes you get. And in between that is just like transitioning between two states. And so it looks weird because yes. it's doing like a smear or something. Right. Yeah. So I found this graph of, of wages uh, in the industry. And at the bottom is in betweeners with an average age of 24. And it's a 1.11 million uh, uh, yen, which comes out to about $10,000 a year. Yeah. So these is it's it's bad. It's bad. That's a very very that's bad. That's an outrageously bad wage. I mean, that's yeah. like. Un- I mean, it's been some people have described it as like slave wages, right? Like like actual animators in the industry have yeah. called it that because it pretty much is that. Because you're not even talking about eight hour days here. <sighs> yeah, in in fact, you're talking about as one stat I saw for those young animators doing in betweening and things like that. Uh, you're talking about like. 10 to 13 hour days. Yeah. And and so part of it also that's not really meant, you know, you don't really see it in this table that you pulled up is that these aren't often even I think if you're like staff at one of these studios, they're not like that's not a set salary. Yeah. That is like the amount that you make based on the amount of work you do because a lot of people are paid by the frame that they draw. Right. So like, you know, if you can't work if you can't do as many this week you're not you're making less money it's not like you're just you are it's it's even worse than just like having to work really hard and not making a lot of money because if yeah. you can't work as hard you just make less money well because i saw a thing also about a an effort that toei had made kind of in the interest of uh improving the lives of their employees uh and this is very recent this is 2018 they began enforcing yep. mandatory holidays and trying to like as a company in their corporate culture, like dissuade this overtime work to try to get people away from these 10 to 12 hour days back into eight hour days. But then instead of saying, you know, we'll slow our release schedule in order to make this work for you guys, uh, they just said, you know, you can only work eight hours a day now, which if you're working by the frame just means you're not getting paid as much. And if you're not working by the frame, it just means you have the same amount of work to do just in a shorter period of time. 
So what I what I had read of that seemed to indicate that it, it might not be that those animators are are working by the frame in that case because I don't think everybody works by the frame. But it's probably more the case of just like yeah, you just have too much on your plate, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, I'm literally not allowed to take any more time to do it, so I'm just like more stressed trying to get it done within this time frame. Or as Toei suggested, which is awful to think of suggesting this to a bunch of artists they were like yeah. oh yeah just just turn in lower quality works you can get yeah. it done on time like, what? <laughs> just fucking wreck your future by yeah. having your resume now say did in-betweens on dragon ball super <laughs> yeah <laughs> right god that must be where all of those shitty in-betweens come from on dragon ball super it, yeah it could be that there's a lot of different like people love to try to prognosticate about like what what is it that's causing the animation to look bad on things and there's usually lots of factors could just be like mismanagement and people not having enough time in general or it, like like you know on a specific project or it could be this kind of like broader mismanagement <laughs> i think one of the interesting things that gets brought up most of the time when this subject comes up that that we were kind of getting at there when you talked about the the production schedule being too tight Right. Is that, and like the studios will often mention this when they, when people are complaining about this stuff, is they're like, look, like we actually don't have that much money to go around for these yes. things. And we, there's just like a lot of stuff we're trying to make and we don't have, like the margins are really thin. Right. And I think there is actually some truth to that. Like, I, you know, obviously I'm not trusting like the bosses to be always yeah. <laughs> doing what's right for the workers. <laughs> But I think there's truth to the fact that, like, they are, like, they're just, like, doing a lot of work and not, the studios themselves are not getting a lot of money to spread around for it. Right. And I think th there's a lot of debate about why this is, but one of the, the kind of reasons that tends to come up that's worth mentioning is that basically, like, from the dawn of TV anime, Osamu Tezuka, the creator of Astro Boy, right, he, that's the first, like, major TV anime is Astro yeah. Boy. And, uh... The, the at least the simplified kind of, you know, the legend version of this story is basically Tezuka was just like, I really want to make an anime. Like, I've always dreamed of making, like, of making animation. And specifically, I want to, like, adapt this. You know, I want to be the first one to, like, adapt my manga to TV. Right. And so he basically, like, had a number in mind for how much it would cost to make Astro Boy. And then when he went to the sponsors, he was like, you know, I don't want to, like, get you know, underbid or whatever by somebody. So he just, uh, as as the story goes, just cut it in half because he was super rich. And he was like, yeah, whatever. I'll just like <laughs> charge way less so that I can undercut the other guys because I can afford it. Right. And that like sort of started to set the standard that like, yeah, anime is cheap, right? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised also if a lot of this just has to do with what we see happening here, which is just a, a general actual, I don't want to say market trend, but like cultural shift, essentially, away from these sort of traditional half hour TV shows towards mm. these shorter form things. Like, I mean, there's a reason why you see less and less animated shit on TV these days. There's a reason why you see less and less new good TV shows and it's because people aren't watching TV at the same rate as they were, you know, and I could see a world in which it's kind of coming out of that where like I mean, I okay, so I've I've written an animated uh pilot before, right? And mm. I've tried to in the process of pitching it 
you know, price out essentially what it would cost to actually make my show. Mm-hmm. And the prices for animating are fucking staggering. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not a cheap thing to make. It's, it's a lot of all. work, right? Everything a, everything you see on screen has to be like literally drawn by somebody. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, photographed and then, uh, you know, uh, like there there is so, so much labor that goes into making an animated product that the mere fact that there was ever a time that an anime turned a profit is kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, honestly, when I was talking about Tezuka and Astro Boy, right? Like, at the time, Astro Boy was a big deal because, like, Toei, who we were just talking about, and, and everybody else in the industry was like, yeah, you can't do it. You right. literally can't make an animated TV show for, like, 30 minutes every week. It's right. not possible. It's insane. <laughs> like, like, it's like, I, still insane. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of like legends about Astro Boy and its production that it's like, you know, there's not a it's not necessarily easy to figure out how much of it is true and how much is like rumors that people said at the time. But right. I mean, one of them is that basically at, you know, certain points during the production of Astro Boy, effectively the entire Japanese animation industry was working on Astro Boy. Wow. Like it, was, it was like that <laughs> utilizing that much of the labor. And, and actually, there's so many funny stories about Astro Boy. Another one that is probably not true, but is very funny is that, uh, like, uh, what we know as Gigantor, Tetsujin 28, mm-hmm. supposedly was greenlit uh, for, t- for, like, a TV version on, I think, Fuji TV. Uh-huh. Because they were like, we need to have something ready to go when one of these Astro Boy episodes, like, fails to be ready on time. Because <laughs> <laughs> the production is, like, so tight. <laughs> Which is a thing that happens nowadays on anime. It's like yeah. things might might not get done on time, and then they have to like sub something else in. Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, that's uh, that's why my second podcast even exists. <laughs> this is literally <laughs> why we made it. Was like we make a TV show for YouTube, and like sometimes it's just not ready. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like uh, there's also just another another bit in there that's worth talking about, which is the way that anime is funded, which is a little bit different from the way things work here. Yeah, and I think this this does affect the sort of margins of the studios, which is like anime is funded largely through production committees, mm-hmm. which are like an amalgamation of companies that put in money and sort of mitigate risk for all of them to produce it. Right. And then they get something out of it most of the time, right? Sometimes they just get like, it's just an investment and they just get like some share of the profits out of it. But sometimes they also get rights. So like Bandai might be in a production committee and then they would get the merchandising rights. Yes. Or like Aniplex would get the home video rights. Mm-hmm. And typically like the, the part of the issue there is that like that structure tends to like not leave a lot of money for the actual production studios at the end of all of that. Right. Right. And then, yeah, like on top of it is just the fact that the industry is just producing a shit ton of anime every, <laughs> every you know, season. It's yeah. like over 50 shows every season. It's sort of growing all the time. That I don't have an answer to. I actually don't know <laughs> why they just keep making more shows, but maybe just because the market globally is expanding for anime. That's the thing I think yeah. is, is in part... I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this is based on the global market over the Japanese market, that a lot of this is just because it's been ballooned out by global consumers. And now there's just there there's so much more. I mean, like, they're, right, like the market for it is probably growing faster than the workforce is. Yes. Right? I mean, <laughs> famously, Japan has a shrinking population. Um, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I don't know if those two are actually related, but, you know. 
whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I actually don't know any stats on that. Uh, one stat I do know, though, is that like home video is starting to lag for anime in Japan. So yeah, they're having well, trouble selling Blu-rays. Yeah, which, surprise. I mean, when yeah, I, I, I haven't mean, bought a Blu-ray in, I don't know, five years. <laughs> it's it's one of those things, though, where Japan was like lagging a little behind the U.S., where people were still buying home video, but then it started to lag. Yeah. Also, I, I actually buy a fair number of anime Blu-rays because <laughs> I don't trust any of these streaming services to keep stuff forever. Yeah. And I can't watch them fast enough. Like, I got to keep them on my shelf so I can come back to them later. Well, and that's uh, that reminds me of um, there was some viral tweet that was going around about like uh, somebody was tying essentially like the low wages in anime production to uh, pirating, you know, people pirating. Oh, uh, I hate that. Ugh. It's such a bullshit argument. It's but complete I, bullshit. <laughs> uh, uh, Katie, I mean, pirating <laughs> has its own issues, but it's such an indirect way of trying yeah. to like blame it right like as if if you just gave these companies more money they would just give it all to their employees exactly right? so uh katie my co-host uh had a very funny tweet about it which was essentially like do you think that uh uh yuri on ice is like some artisan product like you think it's a mom and pop shop that's making yuri on ice right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i mean people do think that though i mean i i know she's doing a joke there but like I think that is the way that people think about this stuff. Like yeah. they kind of somehow think that magically because anime is this like foreign thing that's like they like it a lot and it's like right. entertainment, whatever, because of these factors, they somehow just go like, yeah, it's kind of like it's like magical and not subject to the whims of capital. It's not right. like a thing with like a CEO who's trying to make money. <laughs> well, I think that it probably is in some way tied to parasocial relationships, right? I think in some ways when people feel that strong of a connection to mm. a set of characters, I mean, listen, we're a Dragon Ball podcast. I don't think anybody really necessarily feels that strongly about Goku, but I mean like if you're <laughs> if you're a teen girl watching Yuri on Ice and like you're really connected to those little ice skater boys, you know, like I could imagine the the mere fact that it's made by a big company that has a financial stake in it is probably a, at least a little bit hurtful to even right. consider. I think there's like there's obviously validity in like connecting that, you know, your love of the story with the actual like on the ground creators of it. Right. Right. And like that but but it's it's so weird to try to protect like basically the production committee by yeah. like talking about piracy as the issue when like that's not gonna that's like a, it's like a trickle down economics of anime fandom right right Where you're trying to, like oh that's gonna trickle all down to the animators like no it's, i mean i don't want to discount that like some of these companies whatever have I, like we're we're leftists here right but like some of these companies i think are run by people who are like trying to make things a little bit better yeah not that i trust them to do it completely but like i think some of them if you gave them more money some of that money would make it back to the animators not as much as they deserve but so, no. some of it would but i think that there is like in in this research there there are some like optimistic things to point at, right? I think that despite it being maybe poorly executed, I think that Toei's head is right. in the right place by saying, we're going to combat this insane work culture that we've, you know, uh, right. created over the years by making these holidays mandatory. Like, I think that they maybe didn't, uh, I, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt to say, perhaps they didn't think it all the way through, 
Yeah. Like this wasn't a, this wasn't well, an intentionally malicious thing that they were doing. I, I think it's a it's a good example of the sort of fallacy that I hear people sometimes say about generally just the idea of making working conditions better for workers. This is like a thing that's not leftists who say this, but sort of like, like capitalists who argue for, for improving working conditions where they're like, Oh, well actually it'll actually, it'll make the work more efficient to have people happier. Right. Right. So it's like the toy thing seems to come from that perspective where it's like, look, what we're going to do is we're going to make you not do overtime and give you vacation. And then you're going to be even table in the office. You're going to be even better at doing the amount of work that we were already giving you. And it's like, actually, though, you should just give us less work. Yes. Or or more money or both or any kind. Like it's not necessarily just move the pieces around on the inside of that without changing the outside of it. Right. Which, again, I mean, is it a is it an openly malicious thing? I don't know. Um, I think it's naive. Yeah. But I think so. One of the things I wanted to kind of touch on uh, as we kind of wrap up a little bit is uh, kind of the more positive sides of this. And there, mm. there's some things that you kind of pulled up that were interesting to me. Mostly the thing that I was fascinated by is like how fucking cool uh, Miyazaki is. What is that about? Sort of. Yeah, so Miyazaki, like, he and Isao Takahata were, uh, so they're the co-founders of Studio Ghibli. Yes. uh, Which, I mean, like, Miyazaki, everybody knows. Takahata was slightly less Mm well-known. And, uh, yeah, so they worked at Toei, and they organized, like, uh, they, I don't think they, I'm not sure if they founded the union. I don't think so. But they they were involved in a lot of the the protests and Mm -hmm. strikes at Toei, uh, particularly Takahata was basically like the the story tends to be that Takahata was like very very involved in it, and Miyazaki was like a good speaker, right, and was interested in it. So he kind of conscripted him, and he's like, "You be the face of this thing." Which turns yeah. out, yeah, that's also what happened at Ghibli. <laughs> so uh, wait, so then is is Miyazaki like the Beto O'Rourke? Is that kind <laughs> of like <laughs> is that kind of his role in this? Yeah, we're standing on tables talking yeah. about uh, an anime union. Except I, for I think him, he, the table is a cute cat. That's right. I think, I mean, I don't think he was like an empty suit or whatever. Like, Miyazaki right. believed in it for sure. And both of them, I think, identified as communists. But I, it seems like that was only for like part of their career because they also ended up at some point like saying that they didn't like communists anymore. Right. Classic leftist infighting. <laughs> uh, and, but I mean, that there you can't like take it entirely away from him i mean like just looking at a a piece like spirited away like there is a lot of critique of consumer like there there is a lot in there that points to miyazaki being maybe not a communist but at least of the left oh yeah he's certainly he's certainly left wing and and so is takahata right so Mm -hmm. like miyazaki's films often have a lot of They've got, like, anti-war themes. They definitely have, you know, environmentalist themes. Right. Uh, Takahata was always interesting because a lot of his films are more directly political and focused on, like, labor. Like, they focus more on, on like, working class people. Right. And certainly, like, uh, Grave of the Fireflies is a much more explicitly anti-war film than anything that Miyazaki has made. Yes. Uh, also, I'd recommend anybody interested in this, check out Pompoko, which is uh-huh. uh, a, one of Takahata's movies that is about uh, Tanuki and it's like a sort of multi-generational uh, story about Tanuki opposing a uh, the the Tanuki, the Japanese raccoon dogs, mm-hmm. uh, 
opposing a like housing settlement like a housing development in like their forest oh yes and, and this is the one with their uh yeah <laughs> they transform they got the big big old balls yes uh, so this was a uh, um a couple of years ago now i mean i guess it was uh we had a, a friend of ours carmen lagala on the show and uh we didn't have a new episode of dragon ball super for that week so we ended up playing a game with her called Real Anime or Fake Anime. <laughs> and we found uh, three, it, it was the best out of five. So we found a couple of like absurd anime premises, one of which was that one, uh, which I think we pitched to her as, um, yeah, raccoon dogs oppose uh, real estate development using their uh, huge nut sacks. Accurate. Yeah. And then we made up one that was called like, uh, I think we called it like Boku no Cheku. And it was like uh, about like a chess team that uh, uh, goes to another dimension to save the world from uh, uh, destruction by playing big chess. See that that actually <laughs> sounds a little too out there because I I would believe it if it was like just about a chess team and they hang out but they don't play very much chess, which is a very common <laughs> style of anime premise. <laughs> it's mostly about like them as chess players and like who they are as friends and stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> But uh, but it's it's just worth noting on the subject of Pompoko that it is you know obviously it's got this like environmentalist thing but it's also like it's very obvious when you watch it how much of it is based on the like union activity at Toei and like more generally they are portrayed as they're they're activists like it is it's right. a, it's about like Tanuki politics and sort of like them organizing against this development yeah but Takahata and Miyazaki are both known for not treating their workers very well. Really? So, so that's sort of the double-edged sort of that is like they have these personal beliefs. You know, Miyazaki has like made statements and written essays against like Abe's government and, and against militarism, but then like mm-hmm. they have turned around and not always been the best bosses to their workers. Like Miyazaki, there's lots of stories about him generally just being sort of like, I don't, I don't have a lot of stories of him being explicitly uh, abusive or whatever, but he tends to just, he tends to be very, very like hypercritical and, and uh-huh. not, you know, unforgiving of his workers and so okay so he's not the data o'rourke he's the amy klobuchar yeah well especially takahata (laughs) like the toshio suzuki the like a producer kind of high up guy i forget if he's the president or not but he's like Mm -hmm. one of the head people at at uh, ghibli he actually basically like shat on takahata after he died by like talking about the way that he would like abuse his uh his staff you know i don't think takahata like made somebody clean out a comb or whatever Mm -hmm. but uh, like (laughs) but i there were some stories about him like overworking people really hard and being just like a really bad boss so kind of like rounding this out is there something that like we as consumers of anime can do to kind of like i don't know help in, in, in this to like to 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 put pressure to make working conditions better is there any, like is, is there an ethical consumption i suppose is the question uh yeah i don't think so <laughs> like not not there's not really like a silver bullet here uh-huh. i think as much as we were ragging on the piracy thing like piracy like stopping piracy is not the solution here but also continuing to pirate is even worse right right you're just like you're giving the companies more of an excuse to exploit their workers yes so definitely like not pirating and finding legal ways to support creators is Mm -hmm. good 
I think it's it's like this is all just like not you know as a leftist like this isn't real activism here but just talking about like ways that you can consume in a slightly more ethical way right uh, if, if there's ways for you to directly economically support like individual creators that's pretty good yeah should right? we start so, like uh start GoFundMes for like right. first year in betweeners <laughs> i mean that, that is not a obviously that's not a long-term solution there's lots of people who you're not going to end up supporting with that but i weirdly enough you know what's one of them that i think people criticized but my understanding is that it's actually like like people criticized it as being exploitative of the workers or sort of like trying to trick consumers but it's actually quite the opposite, as I understand it, is uh, Studio Trigger, the creators of Kill La Kill and uh-huh. uh, recently Gridman, they have a Patreon that people criticize because they're like, you're a big studio, you don't need a Patreon. Yeah. But as as I understand it from their updates that they posted, uh, and, and you know, whatever, me, I, I know, like, the guy who runs it. Right. Uh, that is, like, his personal project that is not super, like, like the, the studio didn't make him do it. Right. And I'm pretty sure the studio requires that any work that's done on it be paid for out of the Patreon itself. And it's like mm-hmm. a self-contained thing. So you're not like paying a little, you know, it's not like you're paying $5 and then an animator is doing $10 of work for you. And like the studio is making him overwork himself. Like it's right. like the animator is being paid directly for their time outside of the, the structure of the studio. Uh-huh. which is actually like to do like live drawings and things, which is actually yeah. kind of cool. It's an unfortunate. It's like run through a studio. I mean, I guess that's, it kind of feels like a, almost like an artist Sally sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can buy like goods from animators, that's great. Like I, I just went to, this is not something most people will end up doing, but like I just went to Comiket where a lot of animators sell their, mm-hmm. like they sell self-published zines basically and yeah. like you buy those directly from them with cash, like their studio's got nothing to do with it. It's like an unofficial art book that they made. Yeah, is that like a, a I mean, like is that a, a a vivid culture? I suppose would be the best way to uh, ask yeah. this. Like, those, there's a there's a big those, culture of that. Yeah, there's like a whole section of Comicat where the animators sell their own goods, and mm-hmm. the really popular ones there. I've I've heard some stories that like some of the really popular ones can actually make basically like a year's salary at Comicat selling their books. So like $10,000. <laughs> well, for the, these are for like the popular animators yeah, no, who I are know, I making know. actually a pretty good salary. Right. But uh, the other but so stuff that you can do... So what about for those guys? What about for the, for the low-level guys? Is there anything That's what I don't know. Because like, like, there's just a lot of those people and like a lot, most of them you're not going to know their name, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's going to... You can't find and individually give money to all of them. Right. Right. Which is, like, why they need a union. What? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so is there like- you can't start a union from here, but I think there's a couple things you can do. There's some nonprofit groups that, that do work to try to help animators. Some of them, I don't know if there's a good way to, like, directly donate to them, but the one that mm-hmm. actually connects with overseas fans is the Animator Dormitories Project, mm-hmm. which uh, they've done a couple rounds of crowdfunding, and they've used it to fund these dormitories for young animators that like the animators can apply to go to it and it gives them a place to live in Tokyo, which is pretty expensive. Yeah. And also gives them mentorship opportunities with animators who are more experienced, who are involved with the dormitory program. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like creating an alternative structure of, of like basically like mutual aid for these animators to get into the industry and like a safer 
environment where they're you know slightly shielded from the exploitation yeah and at the very least not super sustainable i think right now but no but i mean because one of the things that i was looking a lot at was uh because once I saw that that number of, you know, the in-betweeners getting about $10,000, and then I was looking at, like, where Toei is located, which is, uh, uh, apologies for this terrible pronunciation I'm probably going to do, but Oizumi? I think they moved uh, from their Oizumi studio. So they were moved actually, from there, yeah. but now they're back there. Oh, okay. I wasn't yeah, keeping yeah. up so with they that were, news. Okay. They were historically there for a very long time. Then they moved out to do big renovation and part mm. of the part of their coming back to there was this mandatory holiday thing where they're like Got they're it. like we're in it we're we're in our newly revamped office we're a newly revamped company we're doing everything <laughs> different you know whole new me I'm leaving the old me back in 2017 exactly. <laughs> so uh, right so they're located in Oizumi where uh, the average rental price is about 418 dollars a month uh, which you know doesn't exactly leave somebody making ten thousand dollars a year in a financially stable position um, although their lowest paid staff uh, apparently in an audit recently was about like twenty three thousand which is you know for their full-timers I guess right so I mean the the one of the issues but, is that a lot of most of the anime studios are in like Western Tokyo and Tokyo right. is like one of the most the most expensive probably like city in japan right oh <laughs> like yeah for sure yes. yeah uh but i mean what I, I guess what i was getting at is like when you look at wages versus cost of living in the places where anime is produced having a dormitory project where like you can take a major yeah. cost of living expense off of them it's not it's not a union but it's right, right. uh uh it is definitely um it's a it's a positive step for those people and, i think and I, I, I have to imagine that that dormitory is probably a good place for people to start talking about a union yes Right. <laughs> yes it is <laughs> yeah so that's what i would kind of hope for there i think the the other thing that anybody can do here which is the same as what you do with any you know similar movement for workers yeah. is like just keep an eye on it and try to provide either financial support when possible or just straight up like solidarity when you do see any movement toward this stuff right yes so like try to support animator dormitories and like if if you get whiff of, you know, any kind of union activity and things like that, like we should be keeping on top of that and just trying yeah. to be like, look, the fans support this. We want this to happen. Like put pressure on the companies to yeah, you know, exactly. not get in the uh, way of it. Be very loud about it. Be very openly in support of it in some way. If you can send money to support striking workers, if they do right, go right. on strike, uh, which but they, they basically don't. I can't find any examples <laughs> before like uh, or after the Toei strikes. I don't know of any examples. Maybe they there have been some minor ones. There have been some yeah. protests here and there, but but I don't know of strikes in the anime industry. I'd Man. love that. You know, it would give me a I break from it, watching you know stuff every season. <laughs> <laughs> Most anime <laughs> fans would be really mad. <laughs> it would give me a break. I spend way too much. You know, I have like too many shows I have to watch. Yeah. It's like kind of better. Just like, yeah, stop <laughs> making shows for a little bit and force your company to pay you more so you can make fewer shows. Yeah. Which is also good. A lot like, of positives <laughs> to take away yeah. from. Uh, uh, so I guess that could be what we close out on is a uh, uh, a call to the anime creating community. Uh, rise up. General strike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anime fan general strike. So all the animators go on strike and all the anime fans go on strike. 
in solidarity. That would be that would rule so hard. Oh, but man, it would involve you outing yourself to all your coworkers as an anime fan. <laughs> It's like, why didn't Jeff come into work today? Uh, well, he's an anime fan. He's part of the anime general strike. <laughs> oh my god! All right. Well, this has been uh, this has been really fun, uh, Evan. Yeah, thank thanks you for so me. much for doing this with me. Uh, and uh, I look forward to our inevitable part two, where we talk about uh, the anti-war movement in anime. Yeah. Uh, uh, surprise! Evan dies next episode. <laughs> Uh, where where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so I am on Twitter at Vamptvo, V-A-M-P-T-V-O, or you can just look up Evan Minto. Uh, I also write and podcast at AnnieGamers.com, which is my blog and podcast. We talk about anime, manga, and video games, as you can expect from our very on-the-nose name. And <laughs> I uh, do some writing for a bunch of other places, Otaku USA, sometimes Anime News Network. And uh, finally, I guess if you are in the... San Jose, California area, I'm uh, going to be doing some panels at Fanime coming up, which is a nice. big convention down there. Yeah. And if you're including the uh, Radicals of Anime and Manga panel, which is the one that we referenced at the beginning. So if you want to come yeah. see that. Yeah. And and if you're uh, if if you're a person in the general uh, region uh, and you have any connection in uh, any panels uh, or any uh, uh, cons, uh, look Evan up, get him, get him out there. Do do the, the leftism panel, man. Like you. you Make some Nazis mad. Yeah. This is, wh- this is what it's Very all about. Very into making Nazis mad. <laughs> <laughs> Though you kind of have to, like, when I when I submit it to cons, I have to be like, look, I'm not trying to start a fight here because, like, the cons don't want to, like, have a giant debate. Right. But the Nazis hey. are going to get mad anyway. So I'm just like, look, I'm not trying to start a fight. But if the Nazis show up, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, thanks. All right, so that was the episode. Uh, thank you so much to Evan for sitting down with me. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, if you liked it, let me know. You know, uh, hit me up on Twitter, write us an email. Let me know that uh, you you like this, so I know uh, that there's incentive to uh, do it again. Um, and if you didn't like it, uh, don't ever tell me because you'll hurt my feelings. All right, thanks for listening.